0: Amen. What a pleasure to listen to something so true and so pretty at the same time. They don't always go together. You're about to hear true, not pretty. You just heard true and pretty. Uh, I hope you're happy about what you just got. Well done, team. All right, listen, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 today, uh, and there's a lot. There's a lot here. It's a famous story. There's a lot going on. I got a lot to say. So, Get there, First Samuel 17. My is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. We'll have the words on the screen for you, but we would love for you to turn or tap your way to a copy of scriptures that you have personally so you can see where we're getting this stuff. If you do not have a Bible in a modern English translation, a readable English translation, we'd love to give you one. As we continue in this series on uh, these good guides, on what it is to be led by the individuals in scripture in the pictures that were given. The pictures that were given are not perfect people. They're far from it. The pictures that were given in Scripture are remarkably three-dimensional. They're they're very livable. If you take a moment to realize how distant they are from you in culture and time and geography, it's wild how realistic they feel to you. The guy we're going to talk about today, David, feels like somebody that you know. He's not. He was in Mesopotamia thousands of years ago. You don't speak his language. You did not eat his food. You do not know David, but you feel like, if you've been, you know, maybe raised around some of this stuff, you do. He's a remarkably human character, and that is because of the way that the Scripture presents him. We're going to get into it, and I want you to see it, because I want you to understand this guy. But take a second. What have we done? We talked about Abraham, the man of faith. He lived a life trusting God. It was varied. It was long. It was wavering. Again, three-dimensional, though eventually he trusted God in a rock-solid way. We talked over the last two weeks about Moses and God's provision both to Moses and through Moses for the people of Israel, how he took the people of Israel out of slavery with this guy Moses, who last week, I mean, we talked on Father's Day about how he, he shows us what it is to be a dad as he is a dad to the people of Israel in a lot of ways. But of course, he's not. He's a very dependent person as God is the one who's doing all this provision and leadership and protection. Today, though, I want to talk about another massive figure in scripture. This is one of those guys where maybe Moses, maybe Abraham gets more, you know, verses spilled about them. But this guy's close. I haven't done the math on it. He's got to be up there. He's talked about constantly. He's referred throughout both the New Testament and the Old. Many of the Psalms were written by this guy who became the king of the people of Israel. But let's get there. So Moses leads the people. God leads the people through Moses out of Egypt through a wilderness place where he gives them the law. He gives them the priesthood and the temple. He gives them a sacrificial system so they can understand a little bit more about the I am and his holiness, about them and their sinfulness, and about how those two things could possibly coexist, how Adam and Eve could ever possibly be back in the presence of God after being taken out of the garden. And he gets uh, the people of Israel to the place that is the promised land. And if you remember Abraham, he was told he was going to have many kids that were going to live in this great land. He now has many kids. The people of Israel are all his ethnic children, but now they need the land. They're going to be taken into this promised land and they go and it's big and the people that are there are massive and so they chicken out. They rebel against God, and then they rebel the other way as well. And then God puts them 40 years in the wilderness under Moses until you have a changing of the guard, until the people who had rejected God at the place where they were ready to go into the promised land have all died. And there's a new group of people. They, under a guy named Joshua, go in to take the promised land because the promised land is not uninhabited. There are many people there. They go in in this war- warring way as God leads the people to take the Promised Land, but they do not expel all the old residents. There, there's a time where the people of Israel live in and among all these people within Cana. We call this time the time of the judges. Because it's a crazy messed up time. You have the people of Israel who should be following God, should be following Moses' law, given uh, God's law given through Moses. But instead, they consistently intermix. They start to go after the religion of the different Canaanite people. And as they rebel, God allows them to fall into oppression. In their oppression, they repent and to call out to God and he sends them a leader. One of these guys that we call judges. They're, I think there's even female judges. They're the people that God sends to deliver the people. And it's this spiraling that takes place. It's a real bummer. If you have a Bible reading plan and you get into judges, just get in there and get out. Do as best you can to mix in some psalms to make sure you can listen to good music because it will bum you out. The whole point of the book is what does it look like when everybody is right in their own eyes and there's no king in Israel? And then at the end, the last judge is this guy Samuel. So about a 300-year period of the judges, you have this guy named Samuel who comes in and God, through Samuel, gives in to the people's call for a king. Again, The people reject the Lord as their king and say, We want a king like the nations. Instead of being like who God called them to be, they want to be like the Canaanites and the nations in that Mesopotamian area. And so God allows them to have what they want. Samuel is told to anoint this guy Saul to be king, and he looked like a king. He looked like what the people wanted. He was handsome, he was tall, but he acted horribly. And essentially, he serves as a foil to the guy we're going to talk about today, who is the king that God anoints, not because of how he looks and not because of what the people want, but because of who he is on the inside, because his heart and because of how God is going to use him to show all of the world through all of time, a little bit of a model for what a king should be. He becomes a forerunner of the true king. He chooses a man. Rather than a guy that the people wanted, a man who God said is who they should want. And the story today is a story of this guy, David, early in his life, and it's his most famous story. It's the story of him with this enemy of Israel named Goliath. David Goliath is is proverbial. It's used constantly in sports metaphors. It's, It's all over the place in kind of popular culture, if you're willing to kind of look around for it. And it's... It should be. It's just an amazing story. But the story today, uh, the goal today, isn't to just gawk at an amazing story in Scripture. The the goal today is to understand how David is, is not just a hero, but a guide. Like, a hero is awesome. A hero is somebody you want to be like. If you're watching the NBA Finals, you saw people that you want to be like, and you know, you're like, maybe I could get a knee brace and like figure out how to get out there and like mess around again and go play with some old men at a rec center or something and feel like a king because you could, you know, if you play at the right time of day with some of your elders. But, but <laughs> if you watch the guys on the NBA Finals, you go, these guys are, are heroes. they are people that, to be awed at, but we don't need heroes. We need guides. We need people who we can actually be led by. There's a big cliche in preaching on a story like David and Goliath. It's a story that gets taught a lot. And so it gets taught wrongly often. And the cliche, the thing we want to avoid is looking at David and saying, okay, we want to be like David so that we can kill the giants in our lives. What are the giants in your life? And, you know, and you kind of bring it down and you just let people fill in the blank so that they feel really great about how you're going to pump them up. You're going to help them find the strategy to kill the giants in their life. And you go, no, 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 no. Jesus is David. You're the scared Israelite on the hill. And you go, oh, yes, okay, yes. That's kind of the reaction. But we don't want to go too far that way either. David is given to us as a guide. We want to understand what God is doing through this guy. We want to understand his example in this story, which is actually pretty similar to Moses in the last couple of weeks and pretty similar to Abraham in the last couple of weeks. There's continuity in what God is doing. But the specific story of David, we're going to talk about this way, he models for us what it is to obey a big God rather than to be a big man. David, Obeys a big God rather than trying to be a big man. Let's get there. 1 Samuel chapter 17. First, we get a couple of big men. Here in verse 4, it says, There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. So the people of Israel live among these different peoples within this kind of land called Canaan. And there's this um, group of lords that are sort of within this coalition. They call them the Philistines. And the Philistines are oppressors of the people of Israel. And Saul has taken an army of Israel and lined them up against an army of Philistines. And they're in this valley so that on one side of the valley are the Israelites and one side of the valley are the Philistines. And a champion of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, which was a town within the Philistine kind of region... Comes out, he's their champion, and he has a height that was six cubits and a span. Now, I know you all know this, but I'll just say that is nine foot nine inches. I am considered tall, I'm six foot six inches. This man was nine foot nine inches. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels, that is, 125 pounds of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels or 15 pounds of iron. We're going from the bronze age into the iron age. That his spearhead was of iron meant that he had the latest tech and his shield bearer went before him. This is a big man in every external way. He was nine foot, nine inches. So I don't know if you watch the NBA draft. Nobody does. You just Google it the next day. But the the number one pick in the NBA draft is a guy named Victor Wimbenyama. God let me learn to pronounce these names better. Victor Wimbenyama. He is, and I've heard two different things, seven foot two to seven foot four. And he looks it. He's just a stretched individual. And he's seven foot two to seven foot four. Goliath. Was two and a half feet taller than Victor. Go online and watch as the uh, NBA commissioner says the, in the, the first pick, the Spurs take, Victor Womenyama. And you watch as he stands up and he's very excited and then he hugs like normal people and he has to do this <laughs> to hug regular sized humans. Goliath was two and a half feet taller. He was an impressive guy physically. He was glittering in the most impressive and advanced armor and weapons that money could buy. There's a reason it spends so much time talking about his armor. It's letting you know that the Philistines have equipped their champion with the best that money can buy. And this guy is the champion of all the coalition nation of the Philistines. He's a big man and he thought himself a big man. We then get a comparison with the, the big man of Israel. You look at verse 10. The Philistine said about himself, I defy the ranks of, the, of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's a champion. He thinks of himself as a champion. He calls out for the champion, the greatest of the Israelites. And who should respond? Well, we talked about Saul. Saul was the king that was a head and shoulders taller than the people of Israel. But look what he says in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They needed that song we just sang about no longer being a slave to fear. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul was a big man. It says that he was head and shoulders above Israel. He had the best armor that Israel could furnish. He was the king of Israel. Goliath was tall, best armor, and the champion. Saul was tall, best armor, and the king of Israel. And yet, instead of having the confidence of Goliath, he trembles before Goliath. Man to man, he was defeated. And then comes David. At least of the house of a small house in Israel. It says in verse 32, David said to Saul... Let let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. All right, so we got three men presented here. We've got Goliath, who is the big man. He is proud and he's boasting. You have Saul, who is a big man, and he is proud and he is scared. And you have David, who is the normal to small man, who was humble and therefore totally fearless, Let's break down that concept, though. I don't want you to just think, oh, David was great. Let's be like David. Yes, but understand it. In our culture, we are absolutely, constantly encouraged to be the best at whatever our heart should determine that best should be. Now, I I just... I get nervous because I have kids. I also just love cartoons. But there's a new movie coming out called Elemental, and I've watched the trailers for it. I haven't seen the actual movie. So, you know, again, forgive me if I'm being judgmental about something that I don't really know because I haven't seen it. I don't know what they do, but it's Disney, so I'm going to guess. But one of the characters in the Elemental trailer is a little fire girl. Just go with it. And she has, like, responsibilities because her dad's like a small business owner, and she's supposed to be there nine to five or whatever. And she meets a waterman. And the waterman says to her about these relationships and responsibilities, Why does anyone get to tell you what you can do with your life? Now, they put that in the trailer. Why? Because it's essential to the movie's plot. Water versus fire, anger versus flexibility. Why does anyone get to tell you what you can do in your life? That's our culture's mandate. You get to decide what you get to do with your life. And whatever that is that you pick, that is now who you are. And therefore, you have to do it at a high level. But that's also the tragedy of our culture's kind of logic. Because whatever it is that you decide to be, there's a Goliath already there. Like like whatever it is that you want to try and do, there's already a dude there that is way better than you ever thought possible for somebody to be. Like you get into that ring and you realize there's a final boss that you will never beat. It is not possible for you to have in whatever idol you put forward as who you are, a really fulfilling life and experience. It's not possible. You can go so far and then trade and then try and start over again, but you can't get fulfillment that way. Goliath had it. He was the biggest guy in that field. He was the one that everyone could look at. So he had both pride and victory. You had Saul that had pride but was beaten. He looked at Goliath and saw something that was bigger than himself. And then you have David who comes and he brings a totally different way of thinking. In verse 33, Saul says to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been man of war from his youth. He's been killing people longer than you've been alive, David. You can't do this. That is true. (laughs) That is is, is true. I don't think anybody was putting money on David. And Saul points out by the math that both he and Goliath bow to, that our culture bows to, that if you fight one who is bigger than you, who is stronger than you in this way, he's going to win. And David responds with a completely different worldview. Look at verse 34. But David said to Saul, You know, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he turned around and rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from this hand, uh, from the hand of this Philistine. Now, we're so baked in our culture that at first when you read that, you think he's saying, sure, he's big, but I'm better I've killed lions. I've killed bears. I'll kill this giant because I'm a giant slayer. You hear him beating his chest. But that's not what he says. That's not what he says at all. Look at what he actually says. He says, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. It is the Lord who has done this. And he's done it again and again and again. He's saying, God's able to do this. So, David is able to say something totally different. He's modeling for us what it is to obey a big God rather than to just be a big man. David, he obeys a big God rather than just trying to be a big man. That's how he's able to speak this way. And and then Saul, who's overwhelmed by the conviction he hears in David, says in verse 38, I'm going to clothe you up. So, he gives David his armor. All right, you're going to be the small one, but you can at least have the best tech. Let's make sure you have the best armor. He puts the helmet of bronze on David's head and clothes him with a big coat of mail. And David straps his sword over the armor, but he can't, he tried in vain to go. He can't even move. He hadn't tested him. Then David says to Saul, I can't go with these for I've not tested them. So he, he takes them off. He doesn't trust in himself. If he did, the armor would be a big help. He trusts in the Lord. He models for us dependent, humbled, creaturely obedience. We did that overcoming perfectionism seminar. The third one was this past Wednesday night. And in that third one, we talked about what it is to actually do something. You know, the first two, we're trying to describe how perfectionists can kind of ease off Let's understand gospel standards. Let's understand the goodness of God. Let's understand the people of God. Let's understand how you fit within the body. And both of those ways, we're trying to turn the temperature down on what it is to be a perfectionist. But if you ever actually try to counsel a perfectionist and tell them to take it easy, they just think you're soft. So they turn you off because you're not perfect enough to counsel them, the perfectionist. It's just part of the problem. It's all part of the problem. So you have to make a third session where you go, okay, though, you do have to do stuff. And they go, finally, tell me what to do. And you go, okay but you got to do it his way not your way you got to do it humbly you got to do it dependent you got to do it as a as a creature as an image bearer rather than being god and that's what david does saul is big in saul's own eyes and then he crumbles when he meets a bigger dude goliath is big in goliath's own eyes so he doesn't crumble anywhere because he's the biggest dude But David is able to do something completely different. Watch. See, when the Philistine thinks about himself, verse 42 and 43, the Philistine looked, he sees David, and he disdains him. For he was but a youth. He was a handsome youth, ruddy, but but he was just a student. He was just a youth. So the Philistine says to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. It's saying, by his worldview. By the way, he thought of things. He was massive. David was small. You see people, you know, maybe they're a little pudgy when they're in elementary school and then they hit middle school and they get weird, but they get thin, you know, they get stretched. Here's David. He's still a youth. He can't eat enough. And he's still just skinny. And Goliath says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Look at you. You can imagine him just shaking David. He laughs because by his worldview, he beats David. But... David speaks in a totally different way. Watch. David agreed with Goliath that he was small. In David's eyes, David was small. That's totally different from Saul. That's totally different from Goliath. But in David's eyes, David was small, and yet his God was unfathomably big. See, when David looked at Goliath, he didn't see himself and Goliath as Saul did. When David looked at Goliath, he saw Goliath and God. Look at what it says in verse 45 David responds to the Philistine You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. Do you see the either or? See this. This isn't about how to use a sling well. Do you see the either or? You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is one God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. Now, apart from everything else, I don't know how David's gonna be a guide to you. I hope that you don't start cutting people's heads off. I don't know that in your evangelism you need to promise that you will deliver the dead bodies of your enemies to the birds of the air. That doesn't happen too often. But the principle that he is speaking is the principle that we must have as a people. It's not about David anymore. It never was to David. It was about David to Goliath. That's why he laughed. It was about David to Saul. That's why he tried to put his own armor on David. But it was never about David to David. David had in his eyeline the God of the armies of Israel. He could hardly see the puny Goliath. Beside the world making, Egypt breaking, Sinai shaking, God, Yahweh. Do you see how he saw a huge difference? (laughs) In his mind, it could only go one way. That's how he could speak with his confidence. He didn't perform well because he was confident. He was confident because he saw the God who would, of course, win. But he could only see that God because he couldn't see himself. He could only see that God because he didn't fall into the trap of the same pride of Goliath or Saul. So look what happens. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle to uh, battle line to meet the Philistine. After we skip this, but after rejecting the armor, he picks up a couple of smooth stones. So once it's time, once they've made their speeches and it's time to actually decide whose worldview wins, David runs quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag. He takes out a stone. He slings the stone and he strikes the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sinks into his forehead and he fell to his, uh, on his face to the ground So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistine saw that their champion was dead, remember there's two armies on either side of this valley, this confrontation happens in the middle. They see that David has won and that the head has come off of Goliath. Where are we at? Thank you. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim go for it, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered the camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put the armor in his own tent. Whoa! Do you see how people talk about this story? With a strap of leather and a stone, God gave David victory over Goliath with his own sword then. Goliath has his head struck from his body by David. The Lord gives absolute victory to Israel. And then the grand armor of Goliath gets put into the tent of David with a strap of leather. Goliath's height, Goliath's tech, Goliath as the champion of this great people, the Philistines, is destroyed. He's destroyed completely. That grand armor that we heard so much about, 125 pounds of bronze it gets drugged off. You imagine David like kind of dragging it like a little bit at a time, because it's kind of heavy. You know, Shaq's pants. What do you do with those? You know, they're kind of heavy. He's got to drag the armor, but he does. And it goes into the tent of little David. He doesn't even have a sword. But with the sword of Goliath, I think this is very important. The head of Goliath is struck. See, David believed the promises that God had toward Israel. God had been promising Israel that he was going to make a nation of them. You remember Abraham. He's going to create a nation and put that nation into a promised land. And so when he saw the Philistines standing in the way of God's promises, he didn't have to ask questions about who he was. He could have total confidence in who God is. When he goes and he confronts Goliath, he doesn't say, get out of my way because I need to do this. I'm the only one who can. He's more confused that everybody else in Israel is not stepping forward to take this challenge. He doesn't understand why they can't see the bigness of their God behind the tininess, the puniness of this giant. It's not about David. It never was to David. It was about the God that he could trust, the God whose promises had been that he would be with Israel, that he would establish his people. So, let's take that and start understanding how we put it in our life now. See, he could be confident in the promises of God to deliver the people into a nation state within a geographic region, the promised land. We don't have those same promises now. Those promises were fulfilled and they become something different. So, if we're going to trust in God, we need to see what are the similarities between David's situation and ours. Well, I see three. He had the same temptations that we do. He had the same God that we do. But we have a better deliverer. Let's see how. Same temptations. There's a possibility of rereading this story later today and trying to find some math in it. Try to find some business parable in it. That the, that the tortoise can always be overcome by the faster hare. If we can find a way to, to what, what is our sling? You know, the other company, they've got the money and they've got the armor. They've got the prestige. But here we are, this plucky little startup. What's our sling? And everybody can kind of think, hmm, maybe it's, you know, Google ads, you know, or whatever. You try to think of your way, your strategy to win. Is that what we're supposed to get out of this? We're tempted to we're tempted to think that David was like um, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. And Jack kills the giant and the Beanstalk through his cleverness, right? We, we want to be like Bugs Bunny, you know? The guy that's Elmer Fudd has a gun. How does Bugs Bunny win against a gun? How does the Roadrunner win against the full arsenal of Acme explosive products? Because he's got this cleverness. We want to be that. Is that what David is? We have that temptation, What's the mantra that's here that we can say to ourselves in order to pursue some sort of glory that can't work? That's the old worldview. See, what David is preaching is that it's God's glory that matters, not David. Not even David's glory. David doesn't even matter to David. What matters to David is God's glory. That's why he can sing. Oh, please, please be a people who read the Psalms. As you read them, let your heart sort of explore. He was able to sing praises to the God that he praised, that he saw as massive. He was able to sing to the true shepherd of the sheep in his wilderness. And that's where Psalm 23 comes from. Oh my gosh, please memorize it. It's only six verses. Psalm 23. David was able to overcome the same temptations we have because he does have the actual same God that we have. He had the same temptation to try and get some sort of self-designated victory where he gives himself some small part of the world that he has conquered, some small part of the universe that he can call his own. But all that leads to, biblically, is eternal separation from God. We don't want that temptation. He had the same temptation, but he has the same God that we have. You know, I said that we don't have the same promises now to like a land and to a nation state But we do have the same God and a God who has taken those promises and shown us more fully how they're going to be revealed through the person of Jesus. The steadfast love and the constant desire that none should perish but that all should arrive at a knowledge of the truth is the same in the God of David and the God that we serve today. It says in Second Peter, so we're in the New Testament, not the Old, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is reaching for you, drawing you, constantly hoping that though you deserve to perish, though you deserve in your pride to go and get what you're going after, instead he's, he's slowly pulling, slowly hoping that there may be a day when you should reach repentance from your own God, from your own pride, and look instead to him. You can trust those same promises. But of course we have a better deliverer. You know, David can be a guide to us as somebody who's humble and sees a great God. But, of course, Jesus is the true and better David. If you read Philippians 2, you see how he was more humble than humble David, though, of course, he was God and David just a shepherd. You see how he was more self-sacrificial than David, though David did what was crazy and scary. Jesus did what was crazy and scary and actually then did die It says in Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at him. I don't know where you're at this morning, but this worldview versus a cultural worldview is not a question. What we're talking about with God being God, not you being God, is antithetical to what goes on in your heart, in your flesh, and what you hear all day, every day. Sorry, it is. So it's going to sound weird. It won't, and you'll rubber stamp it if you consider yourself a Christian, but it really does sound weird unless you take this thing and start writing it on your heart and realizing that if you will decrease and he will increase, you can start to experience something of the victory. See, we have examples throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, but throughout church history of people who did not look at themselves and their world for giants, but looked at God and saw enemies to his purposes. In that session three, we talked about George Mueller who opened up thousands, uh, opened up space for thousands and thousands of orphans in uh, Dickens kind of England. And the reason that he did it was not because he looked at other people that were doing fundraising and said, I'm going to do this even better, guys. I'm going to show you a more efficient way to care for orphans in this country. Ladies and gentlemen, let me present you... No. What he did was he saw the blight on these poor children, knew that God cared about children, decided that was a giant that God was much bigger than, and then submitted his life to God's purpose in England at that time. You have Hudson Taylor invading China. You have missionary after missionary, after mother, after parent, after kindly pastor-teacher, after kindly evangelist, out there doing things. Not for their glory, but for the Lord's. And as they do, we see God just slaughtering Goliath, Not because he hates Goliath, of course he hates sin, but, but because there's a hope that that dead-end way of living is going to go away and that instead, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, now... And on that day, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can get in on that right now. It's going to hurt to be humble, but we have to. Next week, we're going to talk about a big failure in David's life. We're going to see how he repented. We're going to see that he is an example to us, but not a hero. Not a hero. My hope is that, that all of us together will continue to call on the same Savior that he calls on. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do, we want to be people who see you as the great God. I don't, I don't want to define a, a giant by a person who stands in the way of the, the things we want in life. Lord, a giant is not that. Goliath was a giant, Lord, because he, he was this proud, sort of anti-hero, Lord. He was, he was one who stood in your face and, and mocked you, Considering himself to be something independent of you, Lord, I, I, I know that we have that same pride all the time. And I pray by your grace that you would give us something of the humility of David, not that we might become these great people, but that we might experience what it is to know such a great God. Lord, we're sinners before you. We need the grace of Jesus Christ in order to stand before you, not as holy, because we're not, but as forgiven. Lord, will you let us understand that grace? And make us a humble people for your glory. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.